you don't really need to understand the real technology of, of how blockchain works or how crypto assets work but you do need to understand a little bit of the basics as to what what they are constituted by and how they work from the point of view of being non-centralized decentralized and, and not recorded in, in any conventional way like a bank account we're joined today by andre bajarski he's a barrister mediator and arbitrator at 36 family he specializes in the financial aspects of family relationship breakdown particularly in high value complex and international cases He's been elected a fellow of the International Academy of Family Lawyers. He writes and lectures widely on family law, and he's the consultant editor of the Matrimonial and Civil Partnership Law Volumes of Hallsbury's Laws of England. He's also an author of a leading textbook on financial remedies and divorce. We're also being joined by James Brockhurst, who's a partner in the private client team at Forsters in Mayfair. He advises on succession planning, family governance and UK tax with a particular interest in crypto assets. He's currently writing a book on crypto assets and private client law for LexisNexis. Andre and James are going to be talking to us today about the treatment of crypto assets in divorce cases. Right. So our first question, I think, is for James. And what we really wanted to understand is what exactly are we talking about here? When people talk about crypto assets, what do they mean and what different forms of crypto assets are there? Well, I think before um, I give you a technical style definition, probably what's helpful is if I just go back a little bit and give you um, a small bit of history, very brief. Crypto arose out of the the GFC, the great financial crisis of 2008, it was really a response to what was happening with Lehman Brothers and and, and the distrust of the banks. So it's no coincidence that following the GFC, you see this, the creation of this new thing whereby banks have been cut out of the picture. What Satoshi Nakamoto, the, the inventor of Bitcoin, was trying to do was to create what he called um, a trustless ecosystem. When he says trustless, he, he, he means it's not that you can't trust it. It just means that you're removing centralized intermediaries from the picture. When you go to a bank, you, you're putting your trust in the bank. And at that point in, in history, trust in banks is very low. So he said, well, what, what if, we, if, if we can create some system whereby everybody is, is maintaining this network and you're not reliant on a government or uh, a private company that can go bust, then surely that's the way forward. And, and initially, it, it was a very uh, a, a very sort of left field thing. I don't think people really got crypto immediately, but a few diehards did, and it developed from there. And then in 2014, you had the invention of Ethereum, which in some respects is is as important as the invention of Bitcoin in 2008, because if, what Ethereum did was, was, was introduce smart contracts and the idea that you can, you can do more with a blockchain than simply just having, exchanging code. You can, you can build smart contracts, you can build applications on top of it. It's like a, like a, uh, a virtual computer. That, that is, those two inventions, Bitcoin and Ethereum, have, have led to this uh, this uh, this subculture uh, crypto assets what, what what they are in a technical sense i've always said is two things first you've got 
well, it comes from public key cryptography, I should say. So public key cryptography is something that goes back to 1970s. It has military roots, but really it's the idea that you control an asset. Again, we're back to this thing, no banks, no, no intermediaries. You control the asset and you do so through two things. First, you have something called a public key. That's like your bank account. And that's where, where people can send assets to you. That's effectively, yeah, it's like your bank account, except the, the critical differences. Nobody can see that. Although a blockchain is public, nobody can see who owns this public key. But, but what, what you do to access the public key, you need a private key. And that is basically your, your, your passcode to the public key. You unlock the assets. And as long as you have control of the private key, you can um, control the assets, you can trade, transact, you can do whatever you want with them. You, you have full control of the asset yourself. So the private keys are absolutely vital. Um, everyone would have seen the BBC stories whereby some, you know, some poor guys left his private keys in, in, a, in a hardware wallet in a landfill. So it's certainly in my, I'm a private client lawyer, certainly in, in my world, the big challenge in succession law is well, what happens on, on an individual's death with the private keys. And, and similar issues certainly arise in family law as well. With those two things, a private key and a public key, you control the asset. That, for me, that, that is what a crypto asset is. It's, an, it's a cryptographic asset that, uh, that, that has those two components. We have other things now like NFTs. NFTs are basic crypto assets with, with unique characteristics. They're, they're digital collectibles. But people often talk about NFTs as being something distinct from crypto, but they're not. They're just another iteration of it. It's just a slightly different um, coding standard. It's a technical thing behind the scenes, but it's crypto assets. It, you control it with a private key to unlock the public key. Um, we have other iterations like stable coins. I'm sure we'll talk about stable coins a, a bit today. Stable coins are, are crypto assets that are pegged to what are called fiat currencies in the US dollar, predominantly. There are lots of issues around stable coins at the moment and regulation over them. But you have all these dis- different iterations, but they, they come back to that core public key cryptography. That's what underpins um, crypto assets. So the terminology to me seems to have changed because a few years ago we were talking about cryptocurrency and now you're using crypto assets. Um, why are we now using crypto assets, Andre? Well, it's for the reason that James has just explained. I mean, when the first cryptocurrencies, as they were then called, were developed, people thought they would be a replacement for fiat currency and they would be used on a transactional basis in the same way as you would use pounds or dollars. And as the technology has developed over the last decade, just over a decade, they've morphed into a whole class of assets now, which are intrinsic holders of value to some extent. We'll probably talk about it in due course in terms of what the value really is. And have multiplied into things like NFTs and wider classes of assets, smart contracts as well. So to talk about cryptocurrency is slightly misleading because it suggests it's a transactional token. And in reality, most of them are. They've got a value which isn't really used in that way. And actually, it's particularly things like Bitcoin are not, uh, Bitcoin are not particularly efficient for purposes of transactions just because of the way the technology works. It's, it's very energy hungry and it's also quite slow. So crypto assets is probably a more useful terminology to use now because it captures the wider class beyond just Bitcoin to NFTs and lots of other things that are still developing and are very, very new. 
So, so that's that's really, I think, now why crypto assets is probably a better way to think about it. And it's also probably easier from a lawyer's perspective to conceptualize what it is you're dealing with, because it is far more in line with a investment asset, albeit one with a very volatile value, than it is a currency. What other terms and definitions do we need to know to be able to have these conversations at court about this kind of asset? Yeah, well, James has probably already mentioned the main ones. You don't really need to understand the real technology of of how blockchain works or how crypto assets work. But you do need to understand a little bit of the basics as to what what they are constituted by and how they work from the point of view of being non-centralized, decentralized and and not recorded in in any conventional way like a bank account. So um, there is a lot of jargon because it's a classically techie area and techies love to use jargon. So you'll hear all sorts of terms, but these are probably the key ones. So blockchain, James already mentioned, it's the bedrock on which all crypto assets are built. As I say, you don't really need to understand exactly how it works, but you do need to understand the fact that it's it's a it's a line of code and it is entirely virtual. It doesn't have any tangible existence whatsoever. It is based in itself, and here's the next term that you might want to, you'll hear probably, particularly if you ever get expert reports, distributed ledger. And the whole basis of the, the way this technology works is that rather than there being a single database somewhere like a bank account or a bank record that holds the names of all the account holders and all the funds that are in them. The way the blockchain technology works is that it works on the basis of a consensus, essentially of computers around the world, agreeing that the blockchain exists. And so it is entirely ephemeral and from that point of view, quite difficult to, to fit where you can't physically handle it at all. But it also means as a result of that, it's very difficult to change and it is immutable, which is what gives it some of its value. And is probably where in the future a lot of the value will lie in terms of its commercial uses, because it has a certain a solidity to it because of the trust factors or the non-trust factors uh, that are built into it. So you don't need to rely on any third party specifically to uh, to verify transactions or indeed to uh, to hold the asset or any uh, register of it. But the most important terms of all are the ones that James mentioned earlier on, which is the keys and adding to that wallets. So the public key, as James has said, visible to all, it is, I think, if you want to use an analogy in terms of assets that we're more used to using, it's a little bit like the serial number on a five pound note. It exists on records that has been issued, but the public chain won't tell you, the public key won't tell you who holds that particular part of the blockchain. So the public key is very important and it will be uh, used a lot if you ever get a case where you're trying to trace movements of crypto assets because every movement appears and leaves its, its trace on the public key. So you can see that it's moved. But as I say, it won't tell you who holds it or where it necessarily is held at that particular point in time. And just like the five pound note uh, that, you know, it exists because the Bank of England have said it is, but you don't know whether it's been burnt or if it's in my wallet or James's wallet or Simon's wallet or your your purse. So the public key is is very important, but the private keys are the absolute most important aspect of it, because without the private key, you can't do anything with the crypto asset. You effectively can't prove ownership of it, and certainly you can't transact with it or pass it on to anybody else. So some people use the analogy of the private key being a little bit like a pin for your bank card or a password for a for a bank account, which is analogous, but only to a point, because with a pin or a bank card, because there's a central register in the bank's records of you having an account with a certain amount of money in them, if you prove who you are, you can reset your password, you can get access to it. But as James has just said, you lose the public key. It's the same as having that five pound note and burning it or, or taking a gold coin and throwing it in the ocean. It, it, in the latter case, it still exists, but you haven't got in and neither has anybody else. 
So the private keys are absolutely critical. And for family lawyers, which is my area of practice, it's the area where when you're looking at asset protection in this uh, sphere, particularly, you really need to focus on making sure the private keys are protected. And then wallets, probably the last one I'll just highlight now, equally important, is usually where the device where the private keys are stored, because uh, a private key is a line of alphanumeric code. I think it's about 28 characters. James might correct me if I'm right or wrong about that. But it's it's a long line of code for a private key for, for Bitcoin, for example, um, which, which, strictly speaking, if you've got a very good memory, like the gentleman in the 39 steps, you could memorize it and not need to write it anywhere. But most people will store their private keys somewhere. If they are holding their crypto assets on an exchange like Binance or Coinbase, those uh, keys will be stored as part of the service they provide. But a lot of people, particularly early adopters or those who have got very large uh, holdings of Bitcoin or other crypto assets, may well hold them entirely privately on a USB drive, on their laptop, on their phone, any other device that will, will store it. Now, the device that is storing it and the software within which it's stored is, is technically the wallet. Uh, but as I've just said, it can be in a whole variety of different places. It can be what some people call hot storage. So it's on an uh, online database, but it can be cold storage, which is something which is uh, entirely offline, held in somebody's pocket or in a drawer in their desk. Uh, it could even just be written on a piece of paper. Or as I've said, if somebody's got a good memory, purely memorized. Thanks, Andre. Um, I think people at the moment will be very exercised by the fact that there's an awful lot of news stories about the sort of crash in value, as we're recording this, certainly, of um, crypto assets of all sorts. And first of all, whether your thoughts are that that means that it's some sort of a flash in the pan. And then secondly, and I think this is something that I've begin, begun to see people asking in a family law context, is whether such a such a cataclysmic fall in values might amount to a barter event in certain certain circumstances. I can comment on the the, the first part of that question. I'll, I'll leave the, the barter question to um, Andreas if that's okay. But on the on the markets, I mean we have seen this before. In two thousand seventeen, there, there was a craze called initial coin offerings. This is really following the proliferation of the Ethereum blockchain that I mentioned earlier, the idea that, that, that you can issue your own tokens because this is really a very pliable code. You can do anything you want with it. So people came up with the idea of, well, I can raise finance by issuing my own tokens. Of course, this is in a completely unregulated market. It was the Wild West and to a large extent it still is. But that, that gave crypto a very bad name because many of them were fraudulent and the markets completely crashed. Following that, it, that, that, that event, there, there, were, there was a lot of existential discussions about the future of crypto. I remember well, I remember doing a talk in 2018 entitled, Can Crypto Survive Beyond 2018? In, in 2022, the, uh, the, the sentiment is very different because, yes, we are in another so-called crypto winter. In other words, the markets are flat or moving sideways. But people are still building new applications. Market sentiment is still strong. Institutional money, whether that be family offices, banks, investment houses, they're all looking more seriously than ever at crypto. So whilst the markets have stumbled a lot, and that will undoubtedly throw up a lot of legal issues, especially with insolvencies with, of crypto companies, as we're seeing, and, and the, the trust issues around that and what that, where that leaves investors, 
But in terms of the actual the, the, the fundamentals of the market, they seem surprisingly strong to me. It's, it's weeded out some of the, 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 the poorer companies who perhaps, I mean, the, the obvious one is Terra, which was a stable coin, an algorithmic stable coin, which wasn't backed by, they didn't have sufficient reserves. But if you're issuing a, something that purports to, to, to be backed by the US dollar, then you need to have um, appropriate reserves. But of course, uh, in, in the absence of regulation, why, why people just weren't bothering to, um, to to sufficiently build up those reserves. So I think the markets are are flat. But if you think if you compare this to the, the fiat world, um, I think I read in Forbes that ninety percent of startups fail, and crypto companies are just startups at the end of the day. So if you're wearing your your angel investor hat. The, these investments are, from that perspective, are no more risky than, than any investment. They are startup investments. Many of them go badly wrong. The difference with crypto is that you have an, an added risk of smart contract failure. So a lot of the applications that people invest in are built around code. That they're, under, they're underpinned purely by code. In fact, some of them, this is uh, more lingo, I'm afraid, but DeFi or decentralized finance is 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 the purest form of crypto. It's the idea that we won't even have um, an exchange involved like Coinbase. Coinbase are a company that they act like a bank in many ways. But with DeFi, you're 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 moving, removing even the centralized parties in the crypto space. It's purely smart contract based. But smart contracts are only as good as the, those who build them, and they do often fail. So you've got smart contract failure. Um, you've, you've got, as, as we've already alluded to, the risks of holding the private keys. So in one sense, from pure sort of economic, in pure economic terms, they, they could be compared to start, any startups, but you have those added risks of smart contracts and private keys. Some look to circumvent those risks by using centralised intermediaries. This is called CFI, centralised finance, the idea that you can deposit your private keys, as Andres says, with a custodian. They're in charge. You don't have that responsibility. But more often than not, we see the clients choose to hold the the crypto themselves, literally under their bed. And that's where we see a lot of issues. That's going to be very big in the family law world. But in terms of the Barber event, I'll, I'll hand over to you, Andres, if that's all right. Yeah, and it's a fairly short answer. I mean, the, the reality is these are an intrinsically risky asset class with very volatile values. And it's largely, I think, because it's still very new. Uh, there's a relatively relatively uh, limited market for it. And it's very much a case of supply and demand. If there are people who want to buy Bitcoin, the price of Bitcoin goes up and the same is is, is true the other way around. And it is probably still a market that's manipulate, manipulated by a number of a relatively small number of people who hold a very large amount of the crypto. So Bitcoin, for example, I think there's there's a very large amount of the crypto uh, of the Bitcoin which is in circulation, owned by a relatively small number of people who can manipulate the price. So by the very nature of it being an unstable form of asset, it's going to be very difficult to show that a change in market value amounts to a barter event because you take your chances with it and you know it'll go up or down. Yes, I think that's got to be right about whether it's going to amount to um, a barter event. I think the thing that stresses me out, and I imagine everyone else who gets a case involving crypto, a divorce case that's involving crypto, is one party comes in and says to you that the other party is holding thousands, maybe millions of pounds in 
crypto and what are we going to do? How are we going to find out what they have and what it's worth? So can, can you help us with that right off from the starting blocks, really? What would, we, what would we put in the questionnaire when we're concerned about those sorts of things? Yeah, well, I think the, the important thing to remember is that not everybody who holds crypto is dodgy and not all crypto cases are dodgy cases. And I think sometimes people start from the point of view, well, if there's crypto involved, there must be some sort of uh, nefarious activity going on. The, re- the reality is certainly in the last five years or so, investing in crypto as a small part of your investment portfolio has become fairly normal. So lots of people hold bits of crypto in the same way as they hold shares in Unilever or uh, or any other kind of investment. So if you're dealing with a standard sort of case where somebody is just dealing in a fairly small way on an exchange, the fact that they're dealing in crypto shouldn't make you feel any more alarmed than the fact that they've got a share portfolio with Hargreaves Lansdowne or Fidelity. So those sorts of cases don't really raise any particular special issues. I think the ones we're talking about are the, the crypto under the bed type scenario that, that James has just uh, indicated. And often actually those are sometimes the case where the numbers are biggest because, for example, somebody who bought a load of Bitcoin in um, in 2010 or 2011, when you could buy a Bitcoin for less than a pound. If you bought a thousand Bitcoin then, you would now be a multi-multi-millionaire. So you're talking about very large holdings where somebody has held it. And, and inevitably, the people who are early adopters are more likely to be the sort of people who have kept it offline throughout the time that they've held it. So, so in those sorts of cases, yeah, it, it's a difficult exercise because you've got to find some way in the first instance of proving that they have got a holding so you are going to be looking at what your client tells you that they know from their own knowledge if you can then pin down roughly when you think the bitcoin was acquired or the the crypto was acquired it's then a conventional exercise of trying to find through conventional disclosure the money going out for the initial purchase that gives you the start of the trail at some point you find from that the bit of bitcoin that they have bought or the bit of crypto that they bought and then the start of forensic inquiry that leads you through the public chain and any transactions that have been gone through. But the key to it is, is finding in the first instance that little chink into it, which if, if it's somebody who has always dealt offline is obviously going to be really difficult. But it goes back to what I said earlier on about the importance of wallets and private keys, because if you know, for example, you've got a scenario like that, and hopefully the, the person who's telling you my spouse owns a huge holding in, in Bitcoin, you, you, they've come to you early enough for you to be able to take steps to preserve the wallet. And that's really going to be the key, because if you can't get your hands on the private key that leads you to the public key and the asset, you are going to have real difficulty proving that they own the asset, unless you can see a transaction in 2015 where they went off and bought £20,000 worth of something from Coinbase or Binance or whichever exchange they went to. If they bought it in 2010 for cash, you're not going to have that way in. So therefore, the personal devices that they are likely to be storing their private keys on are going to be critical. And that means you probably, rather than waiting for a questionnaire, may need to be thinking about getting injunctive relief to go and get an order which seizes the USB drive, seizes the laptop, or anything else that you think the records are on, and then getting an expert to analyse that document, that, that device and see if you can find the keys. Thanks, Andrew. I think something else that, I mean, this may be a stupid question, but I think that some something else that people struggle with is the extent to which crypto assets are convertible backwards and forwards into into fiat currency, as you would call it, or pounds, shillings and pence, as some of us might call it. How how does the liquidity aspect of these work? Are they they readily convertible so that if, for instance, the court thought that somebody's spouse ought to be awarded 
you know, a, a certain proportion of their crypto wealth. How, how achievable is that in practice that they would receive that in, in sterling? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I'll take this one. I think, I think the answer is relatively liquid. Um, if you compare it to something like um, private equity, which is tied up in long cycles, then actually it could be seen as quite liquid. But there are issues around this. I, I, th- I think if you've got a, a stack of one of the blue chip cryptos like Bitcoin or, or ETH, then yes, you, you, you will be able to dispose of, of, of that through a, a reputable exchange. Coinbase is obviously listed. Binance is well known. Those centralized exchanges have good relationships with banks now. So you can get it into the banking system. A, a number of private banks uh, in the jurisdictions I, I deal with, London, Switzerland, Dubai, for instance, they're, they're comfortable taking in crypto proceeds from a centralized exchange as long as it's a reputable one and as long as they they they, they have that traceability that Andres was talking about. In other words, they can trace it back and they can see the provenance of the assets. However, you do encounter issues. So let's say you have an entrepreneur who's launched their own token and that token is not listed anywhere because it's not listed on on an exchange. Then really you have a pretty illiquid asset. In in the early days of crypto, the the markets were, were generally much more illiquid than they are now. Because effectively, you, you're looking at peer-to-peer transfers. Now you have much more liquidity. You have ways that you know, basically, if, if you own a lot of crypto, you can provide liquidity into exchanges and earn a reward or effectively interest for doing so. So in other words, the, the, the market has matured to a point now where uh, large holders are incentivized to contribute their 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 crypto to provide liquid liquidity so that by and large it's a it's it's i'd almost say it's one of the the advantages of crypto now that that secondary market is so strong so the court orders could generally be honored i would have thought but like i say some some cryptos there's a lot of cryptos out there some of them are so obscure that they unlike any business Shares in a the business, they might be intrinsically tied to the individual, the team who, who, who are launching the token. But, but certainly banks are a lot more comfortable than they were a few years ago. I'd say most private banks now, if they're not looking at it, they're, they're already taking on crypto proceeds. And uh, yeah. Just, just to, to chip in and add up to what James said. So, so what he says is right. I mean, the, the sort of investment grade crypto assets aren't problematic, really, because they, they can be traded on most most exchanges and there is a market for them obviously the price will depend on on each day but there are the various more obscure ones which is often tokens that are under development for the purposes of new DeFi projects or whatever and I had a case recent well a couple of years ago where a gentleman in the case was was doing just that where he he had a a company which had issued coins tokens which weren't really tradable although they appeared on a few exchanges there was really clearly no market for them uh, but it can also then distort the value. So, for example, there was one particular transaction on one day where these tokens, which had a nominal value of a fraction of a penny normally, somebody bought 10 or 15 of them for about £15 each, presumably just a speculative one-off where they bought them. And if you look at the transaction record for it, of course, on that day, it shows the trend, the, trend, the value of these tokens of £15 per token. If you try to get £15 for, token, for those tokens on anything other than that particular day when that particular buyer was in the market, you wouldn't get them. 
So you need to be quite careful with some of these less liquid ones, not to read too much into a snapshot valuation on a particular day, because if the liquidity isn't there day in, day out for trading, it's a, it's a very illusory value that you have on a spike on a particular day. And presumably that's the sort of thing we're going to have to take into account when we're looking at how to divide these assets if the court makes an order that people get a, a certain proportion. So, so that, that case that I just mentioned is a good example of the wife in that case and, and her solicitor picking up on that transaction and saying, right, this guy's got 100 million of these tokens. Multiply that by 15 pounds. This guy is worth uh, you know, a fraction of a, you know, going towards a billion pounds. Of course, he isn't because he couldn't, he couldn't sell the rest of them for anything like that price. So, yeah, it, it becomes a real issue when you're looking at these less liquid ones in terms of how you then share them whether you do an in-species Mars and Wells type sharing rather than trying to fix a value on it, which is probably illusory. I suppose the problem with with that approach, the well, the Wells approach, where you know the people each get a proportion of the risk-laden assets, is that for one person is likely to be extremely familiar with that class of assets and to know what to do with it and comfortable holding it, and the other is likely to want to turn it into cash as soon as possible and 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 be and be clear of it yeah i mean the view i've generally taken in the cases that i've done is that um it's for the parties to make that decision so rather than forcing the person who holds the asset to sell it uh, and pay a lump sum to the other when the value may change from when the court makes the order to when the transaction can actually be affected may well be unfair to that person or it may undercompensate the other one so frankly it's simpler probably if you've got 10 bitcoin give one five to one, five to the other, they can then make a decision as to how much risk they want to run and how long they want to remain in the market. Uh, but the value is the value that they choose to cash in on any particular day. It is more difficult with those types of assets that James was talking about, where somebody is developing new technology based on tokens or uh, some sort of DeFi technology, where the value probably will amount to nothing in most of these cases, because startups, you know, for every 100 you get, maybe one will succeed and 99 will fail. But if you're the one that will succeed, potentially there is something there of very high value. Uh, and those are the scenarios where it's far more difficult to work out how to share because it's not always easy to just do a in-species sharing. You may then be in the territory of thinking about having deferred lump sums so that if the investment comes good at some point in the future, the lump sum is then paid at the point when it's liquidated. Does that cover all of the um, options um, in respect of the orders that the court could make? Obviously, you're talking about either a sharing of the the portfolio, if you like, sale, deferred lump sums. Is there anything else we should think about? Really, I mean, it, 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 although it's a novel form of asset, it is just another form of asset. So the court will deal with it as property. And it has the same powers that it has to do with any kind of property, which is sell it, divide it if it's capable of being divided, or fix a value on it and order a lump sum to be paid. And if the value can't be fixed, maybe think about deferring it to a point in the future when it's finally liquidated, and then a lump sum is paid based on whatever it fetches. And Andre, in terms of expert evidence, it, 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 in in a case perhaps such as the one that you you described, where there are two potential interpretations of what the value of a particular um, holding is, what what ought the court's approach to be? Presumably, expert evidence, and and you know who who are we talking about, and 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 how does that work in practice? If you're talking about the normal sort of investment grade crypto assets, their value is found from an exchange on any given day. So you don't need expert evidence in the context of that normally. 
you may want to take your own investment advice for a party as to whether they should hold or go. But, you know, that's crystal ball gazing of, of the most speculative kind, probably. When you're dealing with the more uncertain assets, I am far from convinced that in the vast majority of cases, an expert is going to be able to value it to any extent, unless what is being developed is already being exploited to some extent commercially. But in my experience, many of the companies that are developing new forms of decentralized finance type stuff based on the on the blockchain, they're at a very early stage of development. And it's very, very far from being confirmed whether there's actually anything of any value in it or whether it can be monetized. So unless you've got a fairly mature business, which has already gone beyond the development stage and is getting somewhere, I suspect that a an expert assessment is probably a waste of money because it's finger in the wind stuff. Is this an area where there's where where we can learn from our private client colleagues? Do you do you have to deal with expert valuations uh, for probate, James? Yeah, and and it's not entirely clear what we're supposed to do because for, for inheritance tax purposes, we usually use um, the the quarter up method. That means you you take the highest and lowest valuation uh, on a given day. Let's say we're talking conventional assets here so you take the highest and lowest values on the stock market and then you add a quarter to the, of, of the difference to the lowest value we've tried doing that in, in, in the case of crypto but it's a nightmare because wh- where do you start do, do you do you do, i suppose you could take the 24-hour period of the day so up until midnight but of course the fluctuations in that period can be absolutely wild and you can end up with, with some odd results uh, there is some guidance and, and hmrc tends to take that approach for valuation purposes but again you you can just just going across different exchanges you can have um very significant differences between a centralized exchange like 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 coinbase which is based on an order book model someone places an order and it's matched compared to a decentralized exchange which is uh, don't really have time to go into it but it's based around pairs of tokens very often decentralized exchanges are playing catch-up uh, um, with, with the the the, the, uh, the values in the centralized exchanges, in other words, there, there, there's big disparity, and traders make a lot of money through this arbitrage. I mean, I've got one client who trades, um, I think, in in South Korean exchanges. Bitcoin is always sold at a bit of a premium, so it's a simple model of buying in, on South Korean exchanges and selling them into the West. But it just shows that it, it's, it's it's very the valuation. It, Issues are very difficult to pin down. Yeah, so so just chipping in on experts as well, because the, the other aspect of experts in the family law context is not just valuation, but also tracing. And that's going back to the sort of scenario we talked about earlier on, where you're trying to just follow through from some chink where you finally identify that there was some crypto held at some point in the past. What has happened to that and whether there's a further holding that's still retained. And you can get some fairly sophisticated analysis done through working through the blockchain and trying to link wallets to individuals and then linking transactions to wallets. And by doing so, being able to prove, in some cases, ownership of an asset, despite the fact uh, that you haven't got a clear name attached to to a particular wallet, but just by jigsaw identification, if you like. But that is a very time-consuming exercise for an expert to perform because it's an iterative analysis of transactions, which may well be very, very numerous. Uh, And there's still relatively few people who are doing it. And as a result of that, they're almost able to name their own price for doing the work. So um, that sort of exercise I've found can be really, really expensive. And for many people, uh, probably beyond their, their their limits, and you have to make a real decision as to whether it's proportionate to spend the money in order to 
to achieve the results. So I've seen quotes of, of experts charging between five and 10,000 just to do an initial bit of analysis, just to see whether there is more there that is worth tracing. The full tracing exercise, if you go into it, particularly if there's a lengthy history going back over a number of years, could very easily run to 40 or 50,000 pounds. So unless you're, you're, you're fairly confident there is a, a genuine pot of gold at the, the end of the rainbow, you really need to think about whether it's it's a, a route that's worth embarking on. Yeah, I think it's interesting though, because as as you say, well, once you have your um, your initial entry point into the crypto world, then you can go on this this, this wild goose chase, effectively, whereby somebody can, who who can, can can navigate their way around public blockchains. And that's how you end up with the, with these freezing freezing orders. I know you've been involved with Andres, but um, the problem is as well with that is that in theory everything is stored um, publicly, which is great, and and that should make this process easier to to track in some cases. However, there are a couple of spanners in the works. So the, the first is that in the news recently it is something called Tornado Cash, which is what's called a mixer. So mixers. I've been around for a few years and, and I, I always compared them in layman's terms to a vending machine. You, you put in one crypto, you get another out. But the point being that uh, it's anonymous and it breaks the, the chain. So up until that point, all the transactions stored publicly. When you go through one of these mixers, you, you're effectively going off the blockchain because it basically mixes all the assets up and throws them out, and then you, the, the asset you end up with is, is untraceable. It's untraceable. So that that's I'm not surprised to see that the, the United States have sanctioned uh, those who have used the wallets of those who have used Tornado Cash. I think it was always coming. Um, there's another one called Shapeshift, and it was, it was always suggested that certain uh, rogue states, I won't specify, had used Shapeshift to launder proceeds of ransomware attacks so it's breaking that 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 provenance that you get with blockchain and the other one is when you use centralized exchanges uh, basically then you're going off chain you're then entering a sort of banking uh, banking environment effectively in other words like a, a centralized intermediary and again you're going off the chain but to a large extent in in some cases it can work perfectly tracing because everything is neatly laid out in in the public domain. You mentioned earlier the possibility of needing injunctions in these kinds of cases. What 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 orders can the court make to prevent improper disposal of crypto assets? Well it's it's a form of property, so the the availability of freezing orders is there in the same way as for any other property. But I think when you are turning your mind to obtaining an injunction if you think is necessary in a particular case to bear in mind the entirely intangible nature of crypto and the fact that it's totally decentralized. So unless you've got it on a exchange, which is sort of broadly analogous to having money in a bank account, I suppose, because you could serve an injunction on the exchange, if the exchange honor it, I'll come back to that in just a minute, then you will freeze the asset successfully. But if you're dealing with something which is off the, uh, the, the register, so to speak, in the sense that it's on wallets that are privately held, the important thing really is to preserve the wallet, as I've said, and to focus on the keys rather than thinking about preserving the asset. Because an order that freezes the crypto is freezing something which is intangible and can be moved in a fraction of a second from one place to another 
in terms of its its existence in the in, in the um, in the ether. What's really important is to make sure that those transactions can't take place, which means getting hold of the private keys. In terms of exchanges, I'll just deal with that because the problem there is is isn't so much about the nature of the asset because if an exchange is served with an injunction, they will be bound to comply with it in the same way as a bank is. The difficulty with the exchanges is that they don't usually have a UK presence. If they do have a UK presence, it's usually only the payment receiving service. So where you put your cash in in order to, 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 to buy investments. Where the investments themselves are held is usually outside of the jurisdiction. And certainly the company that runs the exchange is usually US-based or, or based in some other uh, offshore jurisdiction. And that means, therefore, they're outside the jurisdiction of the court, strictly speaking. The good news is that it's only in my experience, the big players like Coinbase, Binance, will generally, if they're contacted and told that the court has made an order freezing assets, despite the fact they're probably not legally bound by the order, give effect to it. And so then your real practical problem is just serving them. And because they don't usually have a UK address for service, you're probably going to need to get a uh, an order for a substituted service, which often has to be via an email address if you've got one. But if you look around at some of the websites for Kraken, Binance and the like, you won't even find a contact address anywhere on the website. So I've had at least one case where an injunction was served by giving them notice via the contact page on their website. So where you fill out your email address and the name and address of the person making the inquiry. And then in the inquiry box, you write in big, bold letters, an injunction has been made by the High Court on this date in these terms. Please contact us and we'll serve you with the order just to bring it to their attention. So you need to give some thoughts as to how you're going to carry through the, the practicalities of it. Yeah, and just to add as well that you, you would have seen in, over the summer of this year, 2022, that, that the High Court permitted the, the service of proceedings via uh, a crypto asset, via an, an NFT. And I think it must have been uh, uh, airdropped into that individual's wallet. And, and all, yeah, so, so that that is a particularly novel uh, approach that, that was very interesting. So you've slogged your way through the case. You've established that one of the parties holds crypto. You've established what it's worth. You've established that it is potentially liquid and you get to the point where you're thinking about an order for part of that holding to be liquidated and paid to the other person and some bright spark pops up and says would any tax be payable at that time James? Um, Yes in in the sense uh, that they are the crypto assets are legal uh, our property and have been recognized as such for about four years and since before prior to that there's a lot of question marks people saying well should we even be paying tax and I always thought well yes I think you should even even though we don't have this confirmation yet they are treated as property and subject in the UK to uh, capital gains tax on disposals inheritance tax uh, if if you generate returns by the passive return by using decentralized finance or, or DeFi platforms, that will be subject to income tax, or in some cases CGT. So these are fully taxable assets, and there, there are some bizarre rules that the HMRC have tried to impose on, on CITUS. So CITUS is relevant to uh, non domiciliaries in the UK. So if you're a resident non-dom and you own crypto assets, HMRC will say, well, we're going to 
treat the crypto assets as being situated for tax purposes where you are resident. So the idea that you can basically keep crypto assets offshore and not pay tax on them, that doesn't seem to work in the UK because you're effectively denied a remittance basis on them. So we have these quirks, but uh, that, that reinforces the need for a lot of planning around crypto tax planning that, that wealthy individuals want to undertake. But in short, tax is uh, very relevant and also throws up lots of issues because if, if you make a disposal of an asset which subsequently crashes, as we've seen frequently, then you end up with a tax bill, but not with an asset that has no value. So again, that, that goes back to your earlier point about, about changing uh, settlement orders. But yes, it's a very live issue. Uh, a lot, lots of uh, things to, still to bottom out with HMRC. But generally, I must say, HMRC are doing a good job on this. They've been very proactive. And it's not very often I say that. And so to be clear, if, if your crypto is held in a South Pacific atoll somewhere on a, on a server and you sell it, you are charged UK, CG, if you are a UK resident, it's UK CGT that you pay on that disposal. Yes, exactly. I mean, I, I was thinking more of the context of if you put the, the, the assets, I mean, back to, to Andres's earlier point about if, if you store them in a hardware wallet, so that's cold storage, and you put that in, in Switzerland or in, in, you know, in, a, in an island, in a far-flung place, that doesn't matter from the... the from the UK tax authorities' perspective, because they will treat um, the asset as still being situated in the UK. I think it will be a, a challenge to that at some point. But more generally, in terms of trust structuring, family lawyers will see more crypto assets held in trust. It's a growing area where trust companies are really trying to get to grips with it, trying to figure out solutions about who holds the asset, because a trustee has to take title, legal title, uh, but they don't want to be holding private keys. So they need to enter into arrangements with custodians. Uh, they can trust to hold the assets. But we're seeing a lot more uh, attempts by wealthy individuals to hold assets in trusts. And that will certainly be relevant in um, in divorce settlements. Are there any other structures that are being used to hold these, these sorts of assets that we should know about? Foundations, certainly as well. People like foundations for various reasons, especially that there are no, uh, similar to a company, limited liability, but but no shareholders as such. Uh, So foundations are used widely in both commercial and both commercial setting to raise tokens and and also in a private planning perspective as well. I mean, we have have also uh, things like decentralized autonomous organizations, which without going too left field, are basically community run crypto projects and they're often structured through trusts and foundations so what we we noticed very early on was that because the onshore jurisdictions haven't really caught up on the regulatory side the the whole crypto industry is offshore now so uh, sometimes that's not at all tax driven it's purely regulatory that that if you even for in private client setting as well as commercial it's all offshore jurisdictions like Cayman have introduced um, what's called virtual asset service provider regulations, VASP regulations. They're everywhere offshore now and onshore jurisdictions are playing catch up. So that, that complicates things as well in terms of enforcement. 
So I was wondering if there are any novel structures that business people are using who are investing in fintech or blockchain type solutions. Well, James mentioned earlier on uh, the FAD a few years ago for initial coin offerings, and I've certainly seen uh, a number of businesses where they are developing this uh, this new kind of technology. And rather than trying to raise finance in the conventional way by issuing shares, although they may well be set up as a company, the way they raise the finance is by way of initial coin offering, so that investors buy the tokens that they've created, effectively a crypto uh, asset which they have created, uh, in return for effectively a promise to receive the services which the company will have in the future, potentially with the view for then selling those tokens so that somebody else can cash them in for the services. So it creates a rather uh, unusual structure where the value of the business potentially isn't in the shares of the business itself as a company, but is in the tokens which are held by that business. Um, I think that may have now slightly be, be less favoured by the, the businesses doing this kind of stuff than it was before. But there certainly may well still be some businesses around that are structured in that way. Generally speaking, James talked about this in the tax context, about the fact that he's reasonably impressed so far by by HMRC. Do you think this is an area, to both of you really, do you think this is an area where legislation is at least catching up with developments in the crypto field? Or are there going to be changes coming down the line so as to try and ensure that crypto doesn't become a wild west where people can evade tax, evade law, evade orders of the family court and so on? What do you both think? Uh, yeah, I mean, to, just to clarify, whilst I did give some praise to HMRC, there are still a lot of reservations I have with their, with their approach on certain issues. Uh, not least citus. But yes, um, uh, in terms of legislative or rule changes, I think the general mantra has always been that common law is so flexible and wonderful, it can accommodate all these wonderful uh, innovations. And to a large extent, I think that's true. But we do have issues around the ability still for someone to put the crypto under their bed and in the cold storage case and uh, effectively evade everybody, whether that be the, the tax authorities or their spouses. Uh, and it's very hard to, to, to figure a way to, to regulate that. I mean, at an international level, efforts are being made now to bring in something called common reporting standard and apply it to crypto. That basically means if you hold, um, say, an account with, with a crypto exchange in Hong Kong and you live in the UK, the Hong Kong exchange will report the existence of that account to the Hong Kong tax authorities who will exchange information with the UK tax authorities. And it's, it's called automatic information exchange. That, it seems, is coming for crypto. And there are lots of other rules as well, driven by the, the Financial Action Task Force. So internationally, yes, regulation is coming. It, some of it, to, to a certain extent, will help the, 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 the tracing aspect of all this. Uh, and, and I think the more regulation we get, the better. But the issue is, we just come back to, to again, the, the, decent, the decentralized nature of crypto. When you've got a, an exchange, in my example, in Hong Kong, you've got something you can enforce against. You, you have um, a company, a private company or public company, whatever. And that's fine. They will comply because you can regulate them. However, you can't regulate a private individual um, you, you can't tell them to comply with, 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 well, it would be 
entering new territory. I'm sure there'll be a way to, to, to do it. I mean, one idea is to have some kind of national register of crypto interests, uh, whereby you have to disclose it to HMRC or whoever if, if you own crypto. But I can't see that ever happening. I mean, they, they proposed this for, for stocks and shares. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in 1920s politics. And I was interested to find out that Winston Churchill had proposed this in 1926. And today, left-wing commentators are still proposing it. Let's have a national register. But yes, you could have that for crypto, but I can't see it ever happening. So yes, it's going to be tricky to, 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 uh, to, to, to legislate for this. Um, there is talk by, by the UK Law Commission to give crypto assets a new recognition as a third type of property, because it's not, what they've said is it's not a chosen possession, it's not a chosen action. It's, a, it's like a third type of uh, intangible property. And that they want to bring this in uh, and, and give it formal recognition. If, if that comes in, then that could be a very significant legislative change. We'd have to see what implications that would have. Uh, so in short, I think there's, a, there's a, uh, quite a lot coming. I don't know if you've got anything to add to that, Andreas. Just so I mean, a couple of things. I mean, it is, it is unusual, isn't it, that it's one of the possibly the only significant investment sector that is unregulated. I mean, you can create a crypto asset you're not answerable to any regulatory authority at the moment. And that, I think, uh, it's been slightly surprising to me that um, the, you know, the FRA and the Bank of England in this country haven't moved quicker to, to look to regulate the issue of this new kind of asset. But I can see that that probably won't remain the case. I'd be very surprised if they don't try and regulate as it becomes more mainstream. And I think the other thing that might drive some greater regulation is the fact that a number of states and central banks are themselves looking at creating their own crypto-based currencies and assets. And I think once effectively crypto assets become a form of fiat, that inevitably means that the unregulated stuff will either have to become regulated or in some way will become less less used. So um, it's interesting times ahead. I mean, it's still very new days in terms of this, but I, I can't see it remaining as loosely regulated as it is at the moment in five or 10 years time, but we shall see. I take it that it's it's plain from what each of you are saying then that crypto asset are here to stay. They're not going to disappear. It's something we're all going to have to to get our heads around if we're going to practice in this field. Is that right? Well, that's my view. I mean, I think the technology is there and it's really, really important and significant. I strongly think that what we currently have and what we currently recognise as crypto assets will probably be very different to what we're talking about in 10 years time. And I, you can use the analogy of um, what the internet does now compared to what it did 35, 40 years ago when it was created. It was essentially an academic tool for exchanging information. I don't think anybody dreamed about Netflix or um, everything else that we now use the web for. And I, I think a little bit is, this, is true of blockchain technology. I think the stuff we're currently dealing with is probably the crude end of, of the business. And I think we're gonna see far more sophistication in the future. And so I'd be surprised if we don't see in most cases or many cases some sort of crypto involvement, even if it's not the same as what we now see by way of investment in crypto assets. It may simply be that some people's banking is blockchain based rather than being the the, the way it works at the moment. So, yeah, it, it'll change. It'll be there, but it probably will look different to what it is now. Yeah, I'd agree. I think it's it's going to look different, but some things will probably feel quite familiar. I, th- I think probably a lot of professional firms will be taking payment 
in crypto, certainly in 10 years time, I think crypto will be so embedded in the, the, the applications we use. I mean, Facebook are now called Meta because they're, they're obviously looking towards the metaverse. The metaverse is very built around, it's underpinned by blockchain technology, really. So certainly if, uh, the majority of cases we, we will encounter crypto assets, sophisticated families, and wealthy individuals will be structuring their affairs to, to ensure that they have crypto exposure. We're seeing that already now as sophisticated institutional money comes in. It will be, if not ubiquitous, uh, we'll, we will be encountering it on a very regular basis, I would predict. Fantastic. Thank you both. That was absolutely fascinating insight into a world that still, to some of us, is probably slightly more alien than it should be. So thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you.